0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in your word there is life. And we ask, Lord, that even tonight, even as you have um, caused your word to be written, uh, we ask, Lord, that you would write it on our hearts. Uh, Even as you have put me uh, up front tonight to preach your word, we ask, Lord, that you would cause me to decrease and you to increase. Lord, would you be glorified tonight through my words? Would you take my words and would you cause them to be a word of encouragement? To us tonight through your Son Jesus. And it's in His name that we ask. Amen. Well, good evening. It is an honor for me to get to come and join you as you've been walking through the book of Exodus as a congregation. I think it's a special honor just to drop in tonight and to happen to get to preach on the Ten Commandments. It's a special honor, but I would say it's also a special challenge, because there's so much I could say. There's so much I could say about the history, about the context, about the content of this passage, about its application. Um, But I'm going to start, and I'm going to limit myself to what Scripture itself says about this passage. Um, What does scripture say about the law? Well, um, in the word and from the word itself, from scripture, we find a paradox. And it's a puzzle that I hope um, for us to begin to unravel tonight. Scripture itself points to the fact that we as human beings are ambivalent about the law. We love it and we hate it. We want to live by it. And we hate that we can't or don't. We hear this in the Psalms. In the Psalms, David sings hymns of praise about the law, saying in Psalm 19 these words, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And then he goes on, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. The longest psalm, number 119, you might know, is an ode to the law, and it contains these following gems also. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. So we see this positive approach to this law, this love of the law, this longing for the law. At the same time, Scripture scripture bears witness to our human resentment of the law. Paul writes in Romans, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. The law is death to us. Well, how do we make sense then of this roller coaster of emotions relating to the law? We have seen there's one false approach, I would say, that I'm going to unpack very briefly um, before I get into a solution, and one false approach to understanding the different human response to the law, says that the law would say the law belongs exclusively to the Old Testament. That's this false approach. And then they'd say, well, the good news of the gospel of God's grace and forgiveness belongs exclusively to the New Testament, as if there were somehow two ways of approaching God. And we as Christians, thankfully, get the easier, more noble, more spiritual way to God in Jesus Christ. Well, this dichotomy is false, and it's not helpful, and it's not even accurate to what Scripture itself says. For um, uh, one, uh, for a few minutes, you could see that the um, good news of God's grace exists in the Old Testament as well as the New. I'm going to show this just in a couple of ways. The good news of God's grace exists both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, proving these people wrong. Jesus also um, commands in the New Testament, even as God the Father commands his people in the Old Testament. So we find that law and grace exist in the Old Testament, and law and grace exist in the New Testament. Uh, One way to look at this is by looking at the context of of this very passage that we've seen here in Exodus uh, Exodus 20. We heard last week from Matt. Matt so wonderfully um, talked about grace in the Old Testament when he talked about the covenant given to Abraham, the promise that God made to Abraham in chapter 12. God promised that he would make Abraham into a great nation and that his offspring, this great nation, would possess the very coveted promised land of Canaan. And then not only that, but that Abraham and his offspring would be a blessing to the nations around them. This promise, this one-way love, That God gives to Abraham is could be seen as an unconditional promise, an unconditional covenant, unlike the conditional covenant of the law here in Exodus. God is the one who does everything. Instead of the conditional covenant of the law, where there's an if then, if you do this, then I will do that. God says, if you obey the law, then I will bless you. Um, If you do this, I will do that. But here uh, there, as Matt said last week, in, the, um, in Genesis with Abraham, God promises unconditionally to give all of these good things to Abraham and his offspring. So we see grace there in Genesis at the very beginning with the patriarchs and with those who began to be the people of Israel. Um, but we also see it here. God in Exodus, in the Exodus chapters that you've been following through all these last several weeks at the very beginning third of the book of Exodus, um, those uh, chapters show God's deliverance of his people Israel. They show God's promise of love fulfilled um, in action. God follows through on what he promised to Abraham when he delivers Israel from bondage in Egypt. Because when we look again at this context of Exodus 20, There's gospel and grace in the first third of the book, in this redemption of the Israelites. Um, And then here in the second section, the law comes only after grace has been given. Um, Here, parked at the foot of Mount Sinai, the Israelites are waiting to hear the demands that God would make of them as he made them his covenant people. And yet they have already been received by him. Yahweh is first the God who delivers, And then, only then, is he the God who demands. So we see in the context of Exodus 20, grace has already been established. God's one-way, unconditional love, his choosing of Abraham and his offspring, exists prior to the demands made upon the people of Israel in Exodus 20. Then when we look at the actual content of our reading for for today, in the short preface before the ten laws that are listed in Exodus 20, we hear grace reiterated through the loving character of the Lord. In the very first verse, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All of the commands... That will follow, not just the ten words here, but also the whole minutia of applied laws all throughout the Pentateuch are predicated upon God's grace. God's gracious goodness precedes the demands that he makes upon his chosen people. Obedience was not intended by God to be a desperate attempt to earn God's salvation. No, instead, God called for obedience as a response to the salvation he had already achieved. So I've tried to show there's grace in the Old Testament and not just law as we find it here in Exodus 20. But if we can say that there is grace in the Old Testament, so too we could say that there's law in the New Testament. Again, I'm trying to debunk this false approach that would see only law in the Old Testament and only grace in the New Testament. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus himself says in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And we hear in our gospel passage for today that during his earthly ministry, some of the Jewish leaders tried to trap him by asking what was the greatest commandment of the law. Jesus answers by quoting first from Deuteronomy 6, 5 and then from Leviticus 19. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Two laws, the first one vertical and the second one horizontal. Jesus here summarizes what we've heard in Exodus 20 where the first four laws talk about relationship with God, the people's relationship with the Lord their God, and then horizontally their relationship with each other. Not only did Jesus summarize the law so succinctly in this way, uh, a way in which the teacher who tried to trap him goes away thinking, wow, well, I won't ask any more questions. But the last night of Jesus' life, when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, he told them, as we hear in John's gospel, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one uh, one another Jesus says this after he has just shown them that the love he's talking about involves the lowliest of service. Uh, Because he has just gotten down on his hands and and knees and washed the feet of each one of his disciples. All of the disciples who would fall away, who would fail to profess and act on their love for him, uh, who would show themselves to be unfaithful. And yet in the midst of that, Jesus sacrifices his own pride. He gets down. He is humble. He is um, perfectly righteous. And in that act of sacrificial love, love for his neighbor as himself, Jesus points towards the greatest sacrifice that he would make the next day when he went to the cross on behalf of the world that God loved so well. Well, in this context of grace and deliverance from sin, Jesus imparts this new command, and this new command in John 13 A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. This is not really a new commandment, is it? It's also, again, just like in Matthew, it's a summary of the old commands at Sinai. Jesus' followers show that they had internalized this command, that they'd heard it, um, that they knew that this was something Jesus was asking of them because we hear in almost all the epistle writers uh, reiterate this covenant command. We hear in uh, Galatians 5, St. Paul says, The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James calls loving one's neighbor as uh, the royal law. Peter urges love for one another because it covers a multitude of sins. John ties again these two great commandments that Jesus has mentioned, pointing out that if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. There. We don't mean to discourage you, but we see that there is law in the New Testament just as there is grace in the Old Testament. Both New and Old Testaments contain both law and grace because both Testaments point to one God whose character of simultaneous justice and mercy never changes. So we cannot blame our human love-hate relationship with the law on a false dichotomy between the two Testaments and the God to whom they bear witness. No, instead, we have to look to the reality of our conflicted humanity to show why we hate the law and why we also love the law. Well, we hate the law because the fallen self, the old person who is a son of Adam, an heir of Adam's disobedience and sin, hears the law and hates it. He, or I should say she, the old Deborah, rebels against the law in disobedience. If you are like me, then perhaps when you hear the, old, uh, the Ten Commandments, like we did tonight, when we hear them sometimes in our liturgy, you can go through the Ten Commandments and you can go, check, check, check. You might be able to say, yep, good, I got it. Didn't murder anyone this week pat your back, move on, dust off your hands and keep going. Uh, You might wonder then, if that's the standard for holiness, why does God seem to think less of our self-made righteousness than we do? But no, Jesus shows us when he took the law and he summarized it in Matthew, uh, Jesus does to the Ten Commandments what the Ten Commandments do to the hundreds of minute laws throughout the Pentateuch. Jesus makes the law general, so that it cannot be used as a checklist for our own self-congratulation. I had someone in one of my Bible studies once say, um, this person was an octogenarian, 80 years old, and we were talking about the Ten Commandments, and she said, wait a second, Deborah, are you telling me that the purpose of hearing the Ten Commandments is not so that we can say, check, check, I'm good, I'm good on that one, I'm good on that one, I'm good on that one? I said, No, it's not a checklist uh, for feeling good about ourselves. It's meant to convict us of our sin. The goal of the law is to convict the fallen human heart of sin by showing our failure for what it is. And most Sunday schools neglect to tell this to their children when they make them memorize the Ten Commandments. I might not have burned incense to the kinds of false idols that exist in polytheistic cultures, but I sure have lost sight of God's sovereignty. And I sure have put my trust in my own abilities, or I've put my trust in my bank account, or I've put my trust in my appearance, not just once or once a day or once a week, but countless times every day. I might not have murdered anyone this week or committed adultery, but I've repeatedly failed to give to others the same courtesy and respect that I demand for myself. We see in the New Testament, Jesus, yes, ramps up the effects of the law by generalizing it, as we saw in Matthew, but he also ramps it up by internalizing it. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the commands about murder and adultery as examples, and he internalizes them. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Again, with adultery, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Against this measuring stick, no one is innocent. No, not one. Not one of us can pat ourselves on the back, can put a check mark next to one of the commandments or some of the commandments. No, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law reveals sin for what it is. So much so that Paul can say that the law acts as a guardian. The law takes us captive. The law imprisons everything. Under sin, and as we realize our sin in the light of the laws we see our sin for what it is then we realize too our need for a savior in Exodus 20 here in our first lesson after hearing the words of the law accompanied as it was by thunder and lightning and smoke and the sound of a loud trumpet what happens but the people are, of Israel are naturally afraid They, like we, upon hearing the law for what it is, uh, know that we cannot escape. They, too, knew their need for salvation. They knew that they were not holy. The law had convicted them of their sin. And they now stood in the presence of God's all-consuming holiness. The Israelites there at Mount Sinai felt condemned by the law. As sinners, they feared then in that moment their inevitable death. And they told Moses, You go ahead. You act as our go-between with God. They saw their need for a Savior. And Moses did serve as a temporary provisional mediator. He spoke to God on their behalf. Um, But God knew that his people would still sin. And hearing the law was not enough. So God, in his mercy, provided a limited, provisional, temporary atonement system. And you'll hear about that towards the end of Exodus through the sacrifice of animals. These inadequate substitutes, these animals pointed, and this whole system pointed to the once and for all atonement made by the sacrifice of the perfect substitute, the spotless Lamb of God. Jesus uh, even as he has given the law once again, as he said it once again, he is the only human being who is perfectly obedient to the law. The author of the letter to the Hebrews points out that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, but was without sin. He's the only human being who has never sinned. And in doing so, as we say that, it could be said that Jesus also is the truest Israelite that has ever lived. He is the faithful remnant of the people of Israel of every human being descended biologically from the patriarch Jacob who took part in the Old Covenant. Jesus is the only one who accomplished the holiness that God commanded at Mount Sinai. Actively obedient, Jesus upholds the human side of that conditional covenant that God had made with Israel through Moses. But passively, Jesus also fulfills the law through his submission to the will of God the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that Jesus would have rather not had to undergo the humiliating and excruciating death on a cross. But Jesus prays in obedience to the Father, yet not what I will, but what you will. Though perfectly obedient, Jesus pays the consequence there for all the disobedience of the rest of the world. On the cross, there, our old self, the self that hates the law, the self that rebels against the law, is crucified with Christ, no longer to hold sway over our destiny. Destiny, The old me, the old person, the old Deborah, died there with Jesus Christ. And I still see death throes. I see like a chicken with its head cut off that the old me still wants to run around the barnyard and have a a few laughs. Um, The old me still lingers on for a time until I die or Jesus returns, whichever happens next. Um, But uh, there, so there on the cross, the old me is dead with Jesus. Um, And then, through Jesus' resurrection, God remakes us, creating a new me, a new you, a new person made after the image of Christ's perfect righteousness. This new Deborah, this new you, takes part in the new covenant through Christ's blood. Old Testament prophets knew about this covenant. God knew that this covenant would be needed. Uh, Old Testament prophets foretold the covenant. Through Jeremiah, the Lord said, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And again, through Ezekiel, the Lord said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you hear that this new person, this new person has a new heart, and this new heart voluntarily obeys the law? Somehow, miraculously, God has remade us in Jesus Christ and miraculously there is a new me and a new you that desires to obey the law and that miraculously does it um, despite ourselves and despite the old me. I am made new. You are made new. Even though the old me and the old you lingers on until Jesus' return. We are a mixed bag. That's why we love the law. That's why we hate the law. The old Deborah has been crucified and no longer holds sway and yet does not die till I die. And the new Deborah was born at the moment of faith and will live on eternally. The old Deborah hears the law and hates it, whether the law is the Ten Commandments or Jesus' summary of the law or even other less important standards of perfection, like those standards of appearance that I hate or those standards of academic achievement that I love or those standards of social conduct that I hate, the ones that I think I can do I I love, the ones I think I can't do I hate, but it's all in my flesh. It's all the old person trying to be righteous, trying to obey, and yet hating because I will never measure up. The old me lives in fear, and this old me is killed by my own failure to obey. And so the law reminds me of my death, The law reminds me of my failure. And the hearing of the law for my old self self echoes uh, the death knell, the eventual annihilation that will come. No wonder that part of me cringes when I hear the law recited. At the same time, the new Deborah, the new me, the new you hears the law in both testaments, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and we hear not what God requires of us, that we cannot produce on our own. No, instead we hear what God has produced within us, past tense, in Jesus Christ. We hear life. We hear our inheritance there when we hear the law. We hear the promise of what God will do in us through the power of his own work by the Holy Spirit because of what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. So moving on, (laughs) maybe you, um, like me, have a friend on Facebook who likes to post lots of New Age sayings. Maybe it's a quote from the poet Rumi or a picture of a sunset with an inspirational tagline about how there's a new day, you can start over, you can do better. Um, I tend to hate these posts, um, but I love to hate them because I get so many sermon illustrations out of them. Once recently, um, there was this post that was a quote, um, this one person, there are a couple people in my Facebook group or whatever, there's this one person, though, that posted something and I read it and I was like, yeah, that figures, that goes along in the same vein of everything else I've been seeing. There was this post that was a quote um, about a Native American legend, and in this Native American legend, there's a grandfather who says to his grandson, a fight is going on within me. It is a terrible fight, and it is between two wolves. One is evil, and the other is good. The same fight is going on within you, and every other person, too. And then in this legend, the grandson asks, Well, grandfather, which wolf will win? And the grandfather answers, The one you feed. And this is meant to be profound. Feed the good wolf, he is saying. You can do it. Just tell your best self to get better. Tell your worst self to go away. That'll do it. You've got the strength in yourself. You can do it. That's what this says. That's what this illustration says, this legend. This is a false story that engenders false hope. Because uh, this true conflict, this conflict is not truly won because of anything I can do within me on my own. Victory over the sinful self, let's say the bad wolf, is something that God has already done through Jesus Christ. And that victory will be fully realized one day. But until it is, it's not going to be helpful to keep beating the bad wolf over the head with the wrong that he's done. Uh, I think about these wolves and I think about two family dogs that we had growing up when I was a child. There was one dog that was amazing. This was Lucy, Queen of Narnia that was her name we called her lucy queen of narnia and we've said in family lore for decades this was the best dog we keep trying to find this dog again but there was only one good dog in our lives and this was the best dog she was amazing we would go hiking in the woods as a family of six and she was so obedient that she would always come back and so we could leave her off the leash And she would go on ahead of us on the trail. She would scout things out. We called her Scout because she'd go ahead to scout things out, and then she'd come right back to shepherd us and make sure we were coming along. She loved us, and we loved her, and she knew that love, and she was comfortable and secure in that love. Well, Lucy, queen of Narnia, was followed by a dog that we uh, had the misfortune to name, Bad Bad Leroy Brown. And if you name a dog Bad Bad Leroy Brown, that dog is going to be disobedient. (laughs) Why would you think otherwise? If you're trying to relive Lucy, Queen of Narnia, don't name the dog Bad Bad Leroy Brown. Well, we made the mistake several times over. We were dumb because we kept making this mistake of thinking we could let Leroy Brown go out without a leash, just like uh, Lucy could. And we would even keep dog treats by our side to try and win him back. Um, But Leroy would get out in the woods and you'd call him and you'd go, Leroy, come on. And he would even say, Dog Biscuit. And sometimes he would, sometimes, very rarely, he would perk up and come running back for the Dog Biscuit. But more often than not, he would hear his name, he would hear his master, um, he would hear the law, come back, come back, it's time to come back now. Come back, you bad dog, come back. And he would look at us and he would like, be like, oh, oh, you just wait. And then he would run off. He would just run off wildly. Um, Reiterating the law didn't make him come back. Um, These two dogs, um, I think, are like the two natures within us, the sin nature, the sinful flesh, the old self, and the new person, the new self, the new me, the new Deborah, the new you. Um, And I think about this because we cannot uh, speak to the old me and just reiterate the law. We can't say it again and expect that the hearing of the law is going to produce the righteousness that it describes. Um, no, instead, we have to take a different approach. And I think about this in my own life, and maybe you do in yours, because I think about it not just with the moral perfection of the law in Scripture, but I think about it with the standards that I put upon myself and the standards maybe that you put upon yourself. With ourselves and with our roommates and with our spouses and our coworkers, We can repeat the law, we can say it again, but only if we don't expect the telling of the law to change anyone. Telling myself to stick to my diet, and counting calories, and hitting myself over the head with it, showing it to myself on that stupid app, is not going to make me do it. It's not going to happen. But I forget this, and I keep doing it all the time. Telling your roommate to do the dishes again and again and again and again is not going to make her do the dishes. It's not going to happen. I'm sorry, I hate to say it. Um, trying to tell yourself to just work harder at work, to increase your productivity, to hide your phone from yourself, to um, set up standards and say them again to yourself, well, if I just write this, if I just do this, if I do 10 emails, then I can go do this. If I just do this, if you tell yourself again the standard, it's not going to make you obey the standard. If you try to reiterate the budget, Uh, I don't know about you, but in our family we have monthly budget meetings and we think sometimes we have monthly budget meetings, sometimes we fail to have monthly budget meetings. But when we have monthly budget meetings, we think falsely if we could just tell ourselves what the budget is again, then we're going to follow it, right? That doesn't happen. None of these changes happen through telling ourselves or others again what to do or telling us again what is expected to us expected of us. Only love lavished upon us from outside of us will turn us from bad, bad Leroy Brown into Lucy, Queen of Narnia. Only grace given to us when we are disobedient, just like the grace extended to us in Jesus Christ while we are still sinners, only that kind of grace from outside of us will continue to feed the new person within us. We need grace at the very beginning when we come to faith, and we need it all along, every day of this life. Only then, only when we receive that grace from outside of ourselves can we say that the law is good. Only God can do this for us. Only God can give us the grace then, as we receive grace, to also extend grace to each other so that we also are part of that gospel work of nurturing God's new creation within us. Only God can do that. All that we can do when we hear the law again is get on our knees and repent of our old self, hear God's grace once again, and that new self hears once again. The old self is loved and just as we are, forgiven and free, and then that new self grows in grace. That new self shines forth uh, despite ourselves. That new self takes root and starts to operate and do wonderful good works without us realizing it, without us knowing, without our left hand knowing what our right hand is doing. Um, somehow God delights to do this good work, this gospel work in us. And then he delights to spread that love to each other, to extend that grace to our roommates and our spouses and our coworkers um, so that they too might be new creations in Christ. So let's pray. Let's pray right now that God would give us the grace to do that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for uh, your perfect obedience to the law. And we thank you, Lord, that through your perfect obedience, you have caused us uh, to become new creations in you. You have forgiven us. You have forgiven the old me, the old dog, the old wolf that strives within me. Um, And you've freed me from him. And yet, even as he lives on, we know that you also um, will cause this new creation to shine more and more. I thank you, Lord, that that's your work. The obedience to the law is your work, and you will do it in us. And so I ask right now that you would do that new work, um, that gospel work of creating obedience within us tonight. For every one of us here, even as we've heard the law again, Lord, would you create within us a response of obedience despite our old selves. And would you give us grace also to extend grace to one another so that that forgiveness that we give to one another would just multiply your work in our lives. And we ask this for your glory's sake and so that others around us, those who don't know you, would see what righteousness looks like, would see what grace looks like, and turn and put their whole trust in you. And so we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.